What's up and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Jarrett DeHart. Jarrett is without a doubt a young coach worth keeping an eye on moving forward. His passion, energy, and desire to continue to expand his understanding of hitting is a model that all young coaches can learn from. His playing career started at Louisiana State University in 2013 and 14, and concluded at Tulane where he played from 2015 to 2017. In addition to serving as the student assistant at Tulane from 2017 and 18, he worked with player development systems from 2017 to 2018 as a hitting instructor, where he provided instruction to players of all ages and levels. Following his graduation from Tulane University, DeHart accepted a position with the Seattle Mariners as an organizational hitting coach. On the show today, we talk a lot about the constraints approach, decision training, practice design, and why coaching hitting, not just swings, is vitally important. You're going to get a lot out of this conversation with Jarrett DeHart. Jarrett DeHart, thank you so much for joining us on Ahead of the Curve. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Oh, definitely. And, you know, as we were talking about off the mic, I've I've been a huge admirer from you from afar because, you know, you're basically a player coach and I feel like you have been for as long as I can remember. And and so, you know, is it just something that you've always really been interested in the swing and just really wanted to dig in more more about that? Is that is that kind of how that all came about? Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, you know, it, it kind of started initially. I really wasn't that into swing mechanics, you know, when I kind of growing up through high school wasn't really something that interested me, but uh, it actually kind of started my freshman year of college. Um, I got to school and I, I grew up in New Jersey, so I wasn't surrounded by a ton of, you know, super talented players. And then I, I got to, to LSU my freshman year and all of a sudden I looked around and everybody was hitting the ball harder than me. Everybody was a better hitter than I was. And it was kind of just like, well, they got to be doing something different, mm-hmm. you know, so that, that kind of started me down that path. And yeah, since then, it's just been, uh, I love it, love learning about it and continue to learn every day. Well, that's, that's awesome. And you were just recently at Tulane and then the, the Mariners swooped you up and, and apparently so did, uh, Tyler Jeske at Slugfest. He said, Hey, I got to get, I got to get a young guy that's, that's just now scratching the surface on what he's going to become. And, and that guy's you. And so, Talk to us about what your, uh, just give us a preview of what your presentation is at Slugfest. So my, my presentation is, the main takeaway is pretty much just individualization in the team setting, kind of going through viewing hitting kind of through more of a holistic lens, why that allows us to better understand an individual's strengths and weaknesses, I'll kind of touch on practice design, um, and how to construct individualized plans within the team setting. Uh, I'll talk about some, you know, key principles of practice design, stuff like, you know, perception, action, coupling, representative design. And then also, since I'm the youngest coach there, like you said, uh, I was going to try to give some advice to the young coaches in the audience uh, without, you know, I don't think I'm in a position to really preach to anybody. I don't don't want it to come across as that, but uh, I definitely think it's tough to be the youngest guy in the room as a coach and Mm -hmm. still feel like you can make an impact. You know, especially without pissing everybody off around you, you know, so uh, hopefully I can prevent some guys from making some of the mistakes I've made early and, you know, just provide a little bit of information there. No, for sure. And I, I think that, you know, I, I don't know if this is your case or not, but I know my case was whenever I was younger, I tried to say too much and instead of like picking my spots and, and that's something that I've learned over time is that whenever I was really young, I wanted to you know, I, not necessarily make a name for myself, but 
to let everyone around know that that I at least had an idea of what was going on, and I probably said too much. And so I've started to slowly scale that back a little bit. I don't know if that's if that's anywhere close to what you were going to give adv- the advice for the young guys, but is that uh, is what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no doubt. That's definitely a problem that I think a lot of people encounter, and I, I myself encounter it. Um, you know, I, I think especially, you know, the perception of young coaches now in the information age is kind of that know-it-all, you know, that, that, that type of persona. And I think, you know, especially when you're surrounded by guys that are more experienced than you and have been around the game longer than you, 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 need, to make, you need to make it clear and, and be very sure that you're the most humble guy in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to have a, be really self-aware, uh, know your blind spots, and, you know, really take an opportunity to learn from the people around you. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I think, you know, this season for me, being surrounded by some guys that have been in the game for a long time, I got to pick up a lot because there is, there is, there are some things that you really just can't learn unless you're around the game for that long. You know, it's, it's, there's this intuition, there's this, the feel that those guys have is, is special. And I think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can pick up a lot from those kind of guys. Well, and sometimes, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I would be considered a young guy anymore. I'm, I'm almost 30. But I, I, I feel like as a younger guy, I would kind of write some of the older guys off. And it's funny that, you know, the more I dig into it, the more I'm like, they're saying the exact same thing that I was trying to say in a, in a simpler way and probably in a better way. But it's just the semantics were different. And, I, I you know, I've thought that that's been funny that the longer I've been in, the, the more that I see yeah. that, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. I actually, at the end of the season, I get to spend some time in double A uh, with our with our team. And we were in. Um, Springfield, actually, where the where the slugfest is going to be. Mm-hmm. But um, our double A hitting coach has, you know, his name's Roy Howell. He's, I think, he's got forty eight years of experience wow. in baseball. He, yeah, I mean, just incredible wealth of knowledge. And he's, you know, you look at him, you think, oh, this is an old school guy, mm-hmm. you know. And then I, I listen to some of the things he was saying to guys, and I'm just like, well, that is so incredibly simple without oversimplifying sure you know there's there's a fine line between losing substance and oversimplifying and actually creating a concise clear message and um yeah he was unbelievable at that and like you said there's a lot of those old school guys that have feel and they know exactly what they're trying to convey and they do it in really simple terms you know i sent out a tweet actually earlier today and i just i i catch myself doing this a lot and we need to just be precise with what we say we want to kind of sound like we we know what we're doing when in reality we're just overloading some of the kids with the information that they don't need. So we need to understand the information in a complex way, but we need to understand it so well, but we can simplify it in a way that makes complete and total sense for the player. And especially with you, you got guys that are speaking different languages. So I'm sure that you've run into that a lot this year. Yeah, absolutely. The, the language barrier dealing with that was an interesting experience. You know, um, and it was incredibly valuable for me as a coach. I think what you said is spot on. It forces you to do those things. It forces you to be concise. It forces you to be clear. You know, because I, I hardly speak any Spanish. I picked up a little bit as the year went on. But, you know, it, it really forces you to be a better coach. You know, instead of me explicitly telling a guy, you know, whatever, you know, if I'm doing a movement or whatever, instead of me explicitly telling him, I really am forced to create an environment that, gets him to feel it it's kind of like you know I, i'm a big believer in the constraints led approach and it was almost a little bit of a wake-up call like well am i really using it all that much you know mm-hmm. <laughs> because 
until you really can't say anything, you don't know. It's, it's hard. And so, uh, yeah, I think that was, you know, it forced me to be really creative. And yeah, it, it really helped me be a better coach. Now, if our listeners out there are, you know, curious about the topic that you're going to be talking about, which is individualizing within a team setting, think about it from the the point of view of most of our listeners. We've got, you know, high school and college coaches who are running everything, almost everything by themselves or just with an assistant or two. What would what would your advice be to those guys on how to individualize training within the team setting and to be able to do it in a way that that would fit the team or fit the uh, fit the setting that they're in with with so few assistants and so few resources? Yeah, I mean, I think it really, you know, it really just starts with the understanding that coaching hitting is a holistic endeavor, you know, and once you have that understanding, it, it makes things a lot easier. The big point for me is having a high level swing doesn't make you a high level hitter. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a statement that like ruffles a lot of feathers more than it probably should. The best advice I could give is just to listen to your players, talk to them. They're the ultimate litmus test for whatever it is you're doing. The physical benefit from any drill, exercise program, whatever, it's ultimately tied to the intention and motivation that the players are emitting during it. So if guys don't understand what you're doing or don't like what you're doing, you're you're probably not getting a whole lot out of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I think it really comes down to whether you're one coach, three coaches, whatever, it comes down to talking to your players because ultimately creating that culture of development and creating that buy-in, that's the hardest hurdle to overcome, you know, and um, in the team setting, especially, I think it's really important to give the players a voice you know, to create feedback mechanisms and an open door policy. You're just asking a guy simple questions like, you know, what's going well? What can be better? What can I do to help you? Those can go a really long way. You know, and if, if it's just you and you're just one coach, you're going to have to, you know, that culture is going to come from the athletes more than anyone, you know, and uh, without that buy-in, there really is no development. So I really think that talking to the players, Gaining an understanding of their needs is, you know, a huge, huge piece, especially when you're by yourself, as you said. Oh, for sure. And, you know, this is coming from a guy in yourself who's not too far removed from being a player himself. So if you had a coach that is doing what you're asking him to do, I mean, how much would that have meant to you as a player? Maybe you had that. I'm sure that you did. But how much would that mean to our players whenever we're asking them those questions? Oh, it's huge. It's incredibly valuable and it means a lot to guys. You know, um, I think that whenever you can create an environment where guys feel like they're getting better individually every day, you're going to have a special environment. You know, like I think about when I was playing, and I think that's one thing that, you know, I, my situation has been one part of my situation that's been really valuable has been that I do still feel like I kind of have a good grasp on the player's perspective you know, like what it feels like to be a player since I made that transition pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I think about if you know you're going to come to the field every day and you know you're going to work on getting better as an individual, it's really exciting to come to practice. You know, it, it makes practice a lot of fun. The, the things that aren't fun at practice are, you know, when you're doing stuff and you're standing there and you're thinking, how is this helping anybody? You know, <laughs> like when you do bunt defenses for six hours <laughs> or, you know, first and third plays for you know two weeks or you know obviously those things have to be done but 
there's, I think there's a time and place for that. And I think that when guys know that their individual development is being prioritized, it makes coming to practice a lot more meaningful. So talk to us about what you guys are looking for in a swing. And, and this could be just from coming from you or coming from a Mariner's perspective, but what are, you know, what are some of the most important things that you guys look for in hitters? There's a few things. I mean, we, we assess our hitters for uh, quite a few things. We, we try to, uh, to really construct a clear picture of a player's strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, we, we blend data from a few different technologies and we, that allows us to kind of do some deeper analysis. But in terms of figuring out, you know, what the key characteristics are, for me, I, I think, you know, those quantitative, those quantitative, sorry, assessments, those can tell us a lot, but without qualitative context, it's kind of meaningless. Anytime I'm around someone that's either played in the big leagues or has been around a lot of big leaguers, I always try to ask those guys, you know, like, what, what's the separator? What's the thing that's, that's taking a guy from being a 15-year big leaguer to the guys that aren't? And this, the answers I've gotten have been fairly similar. It really seems to come down to, you know, consistency and intent. And, you know, by consistency, I mean, how do they approach the game on a day-to-day basis? You know, how well do they game plan? And how consistently can they execute that plan? And then, you know, by intent, talking about the way they go about their work, you know, how deliberately do they practice? How's their attention to detail? You know, and so those measurables, you know, those, those are important, but you can't deny that. But, you know, for me, that qualitative assessment too is, is just as important. And so when I'm looking at a hitter and I see those things, I know, okay, this guy's got a chance to, you know, be special. No, I love that. And, and something that I've really been starting to dig more into, and it's something that seems so simple, but it's also something that I feel like you know, I concentrated too much on the swing before. And the new thing that I'm really digging into, especially the closer we get to the season, and that's decision training and trying to make our training more you know, like a game. We talk about having game-like practices all the time. And you know, the more decisions that we can have the kids make during practice, I think the better that they're going to be at making them in a game and and, the, and it's going to slow down for them in the process. But what do you have on decision training and, you know, how can we make our players make better decisions? Oh, so I think decision training is extremely important. And that kind of comes back to um, some of those principles of practice design I was talking about. I think that adding an element of decision training to your practice is hugely important, especially when it's, within a design that's representative of the game. I think that there's plenty of five o'clock heroes on the planet, you know, and there's value to developing bat speed and there's value to, you know, developing raw power. Those things play, but ultimately we need guys that hit when the lights are on, you know, and adding in that element of decision training, that game-like practice is so, so important in that process. I think about, you know, one of the reasons I've, I've really been passionate about coaching is, you know, I, I think this is for a lot of coaches, they, they kind of look in the mirror at the end of their playing career and say, well, you know, what, what was it? Why wasn't I good enough? You know, and I, 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 there's obviously a lot of factors that contribute to that, but I always come back to the way I practice. You know, I've, I've very rarely practiced in, you know, competitive representative environments. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that if you want to become good at a skill, it only makes sense to practice that skill in an environment that is game-like. Sure. You know, in most other sports, they, they seem to grasp that. You know, a, an NFL team has a full practice squad, right? Like, they pay these guys 
so that they can practice at game speed. That's the only reason they're there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in, in baseball, you know, obviously there's the whole, we, we hit, you know, 50 mile an hour BP every day, but, uh, you know, we, we've definitely, um, put an emphasis on that organizationally, you know, that decision training and that game like practice. And, you know, that all kind of ties back to the constraints led approach. And yeah, there's a representative design is a, is a huge piece of that. And so, yeah, it's very important, really important. So I know the coaches are biting at the bit right now, asking me if there's any drills or just practical ways that you can give away for them. So, you know, are, are there any? Yeah. So in terms of drills that can, uh, that some coaches could use, uh, I think that you can utilize machines. They're extremely valuable. You can really create a, a pretty game like pitch with, you know, the basic, uh, hack attack, mini hack, whatever. And so I think anytime you can challenge the hitters in, in a way that's, uh, adding a time constraint, it's huge. So yeah, you can do fastball velo machine, curveball machine, angled, mini hack, anything that's really challenging them to make decisions in, in under a time constraint is going to help them become a better player. I love that. I want to know, you, you've been with the Mariners for a couple of months. It was just after your, your season was done in the spring. And so I'm sure that, that you went into it really, really ready to learn. So I want to know what is, you know, what are some of the, your biggest takeaways in your time with the Mariners and some of the stuff that just really blew you away that you just, you may have had no idea about before? Well, I mean, first of all, the the tools that we have there are, you know, it's it's crazy, you know, just professional baseball in general. uh, There's, there's really a paradigm shift going on right now towards being more data driven, really trying to understand what's going on, you know? And I think that in the past, I hadn't really been exposed to a lot of the technology that's out there. And now I think it is starting to become a lot more mainstream, but being able to use technology and being able to not just look at one piece of technology, but actually blend multiple pieces and kind of do a deeper analysis and, you know, try to get an understanding of what one, you know, the the ball's doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, batted ball information too, what the bat's doing. And then three, what the body's doing, you know, understanding how those areas interact and just being able to, you know, sift through that data and understand how valuable it can be. has been a huge, huge learning experience for me. So it's been, it's been awesome. Well, then I, I saved the, one of the best questions uh, for last here. And, and this doesn't necessarily have to be our last question, but this is one of my favorite ones that, that we go over because again, we're in it for the players. And so what is something that your players love that you guys do in practice? And I can't, we can't go this episode without mentioning the chain. So you've got to tell us about the chain, tell us about how that came about. And then, you know, give us some practical ways on one, what you guys were measuring for that. And two, is there anything else that you guys do that your players love to do in practice? Yeah, absolutely. So the chain originated, uh, Dustin and I were kind of just trying to think of a way to break up some of the monotony of pro baseball, you know, just add something fun to it. And uh, so there was some highlight on TV of a, you know, college football team. And I saw Miami playing, of course, and they got the turnover chain. And I thought, oh, you know, it would be cool if we did a barrel chain. Mm -hmm. So we kind of joked about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I decided, you know what, screw it. I'm going to try and find one of these things. And I found this gaudy plastic Fifteen dollar chain on eBay, and I said, "Yo, oh, I got it. I got to get this thing." So we we got it and uh, started giving it out. You know, to the next day, the the, the day after a game, we would you know look on. Uh, there's actually a stat for barrels. It's like you know a 
they basically quantify it by it's a launch angle and exit below combination. And, and, and those batted balls result in, I think it's a, you know, six or 500 batting average and a 1500 slug or something along mm-hmm. those lines. And um, so, yeah, whoever got the most barrels the night before, they get the chain the next day and they had to give a speech and whatever. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. For our favorite competition, oh, we, we got a good one. We, uh, it's this kind of started in extended spring training. Um, we, our manager, Zach Livingston, kind of, we were talking, and it was like, well, we're talking about batting practice. And he said, well, what's our goal in batting practice? What are you really trying to do in BP? You know, you, you've got balls being hit. You know, you've got outfielders taking live reads, base runners, you know, trying to get live reads. And so it, it, when you really look at it, it's just a fragmented version of the game. You know, you're, you're really trying to simulate the game, and it's just a poor simulation of that. And so we said, okay, because you're, you're, you're missing game like pressure, time constraints, et cetera. And we had this idea of, so why don't we just start playing a game before the game? Mm-hmm. So we would call it, we called it the Velo World Series, and we would set up a machine based on the profile of the pitcher we were facing that night. We would replicate his fastball, you know, extension, uh, release side, all that kind of stuff, information you can get from, from TrackMan. To replicate his fastball, split the guys into two teams and let them kind of duke it out. Wow, and uh, awesome. so, you know, it kind of served as, you know, guys got to one, they got to see the, the opposing starters fastball. They're, they're getting true base running reads. They're getting wide reps on defense. And, you know, it's a competition, which everybody loves, you know, they're chirping and whatever. So, uh, yeah, that was a good way to get ready to play. It kind of broke up some of the monotony and it was actually good preparation, too. Oh, definitely. You know, you talk about making it game-like. You guys are literally doing the closest thing you can to see the the starter. <laughs> I mean, that's that's un- unbelievable. And something that you know that I'm trying to combat. You know, it's I feel like it's it runs rampant that people think that the term "quote unquote" launch angle swings and trying to elevate the ball, and they think that that immediately comes with strikeouts. Now, you guys are one of the top teams in the league in run scored. Uh, but you're also third, the third hardest team to strike out. And I had, you know, Dylan Lawson on yesterday and, and the Astros are second, the second hardest team to strike out. And you guys are the third. Now, I'd like to know just from your perspective, is that something that you guys actively preach to be tough with two strikes? Is that something that, you know, it just comes with with better swings, better approach, better decisions that they're making? Or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a big organizational focus for us. Not so much. Well, with two strikes, sure. But our, you know, our kind of our mantra is control the zone. And so we, you know, we talk about it being there's two counts, right? There's less than two strikes and then there's two strikes. And so in those counts with less than two strikes, you're really trying to do damage. You know, you're really trying to, you know, impact the baseball. And then, in you know, in your two strike counts, and it's, it's kind of battle time, right? But I think an important piece of that is, you cannot be afraid to strike out looking. And I think that's something that actually causes more strikeouts than it, it reduces. If you think about it, you know, what, what really is a chase pitch? And it, it's a pitcher kind of taking advantage of the fact that you're afraid to strike out looking, right? So it's a, it's a pitch that looks like a fastball in the corner and it ends up being a slider breaking into the other batter's box. You know, whereas if you're really not afraid to punch out looking, you might have a better chance of taking that pitch, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, you're not so worried about fouling off the fastball on the black. If you get, if the guy dots the fastball on the black and he punches you out and you come back to the dugout, I'm going to say, all right, yeah, good AB. Good. You know, 
because uh, ultimately I'd rather have that than have a guy leave his zone and uh, take a swing that's really never going to result in a productive outcome. Sure, I love that answer, and you know, I I think that it, it that it's something that can be improved with time, and and something that if you're making better decisions, if you're on plane with a pitch for a long time, that I think that you know that that's going to be a byproduct of it, and probably being aggressive early helps as well. But Jared, you've been an awesome, an awesome, awesome resource for us, especially on the uh, on Twitter and and in the hitting Twitter community. But can you give us a couple of your favorite resources that we should go ahead and dig into? Sure. Yeah, I think one book that everybody should read. Uh, I kind of started when I finished playing, and I decided I was going to get into coaching. I really was like, you know, I'm gonna I want to do this right. I want to try and gather as much information as possible. I want to try to learn as much as I can and. So I started and I, I got my hands on this book, Game Changer, by uh, Dr. Fergus Connolly. Mm-hmm. And I actually had an opportunity to meet him and talk to him a little bit. And he's a, he's a very interesting character. He's a really funny guy. But that book completely shifted my perspective on how I looked at player development. That understanding that holistic model that he talks about in the coactive, that really shaped the way I look at hitting now. Uh, if, you, you know, if you're not familiar with it, it's... He discusses these, these four coactives that he, you know, part of that are part of player development. There's um, the psychological aspect. There's the physiological. There's the technical, and there's the tactical. And so I, you know, he makes an argument. Which how often do we go to the the technical aspect when guys are struggling? You know, how often in baseball do we go to the mechanical aspect when guys are struggling? Mechanics are un, they're undeniably important, but I really believe that the, the psychological and physical aspects of skill execution, they're indivisible. You cannot separate the two. And, you know, most other major sports seem to understand that, but I think there are a lot of people, and it's something about baseball, I don't know what it is, but there's a lot of people that view hitting through this really reductionist lens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that seeing that, those four coactives and really trying to understand how does that show up in hitting? You know, mechanics could be the issue, but what if it's not? What if it's a perceptual issue? What if it's a, you know, physical deficiency that's forcing a guy into his current movement pattern? You know, if we don't try to assess and understand all of the areas that are involved in the task of hitting, you can really end up digging in the wrong direction. Sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but uh, that book really completely shifted my perspective on how I viewed hitting and how I viewed training hitters. You know, I, I've fallen into the trap of I, I can't get the kid to do what I'm asking him to do. And like you mentioned, it's it's completely holistic. Like it, it could be a perception thing. It could be a mobility thing. It could be a stability thing. I, I mean, there's so many different things that it could be to try and, you know, get them into the into the position that you're asking them to. Maybe they just they can't. Yeah, no doubt. You know, uh, hitting is really, really complicated. Right. And uh you know, I think that people are afraid of kind of going down that rabbit hole and, and really trying to understand all aspects of it. And, you know, I think you can go down that route and obviously you can still be wrong. You know, you can mm-hmm. still be wrong in your analysis. But I think that, you know, by trying to see that whole picture, you, you decrease your chances of being wrong. You know, and I, and I think there's a, there's a ton of value in that. Sure. And, and, you know, even if we are wrong, we're going to be wrong less of the time, <laughs> like less of yeah. the amount of the time, for sure. <laughs> yeah, no but, doubt. 
But Jared, if if there's uh, if our listeners have any questions for you and and would like to get in touch just to talk with you about you know hitting or just anything in general, what would be the best way to do that? Oh uh, yeah, just reach out to me on Twitter. That would probably be the easiest way. I, I love talking about hitting. Um, or you can uh, email me jdehart at mariners dot com. Again, just I'd love to talk hitting. Uh, that'd be awesome. Feel free to reach out. Jared, again, thank you so much for being on the show today, and and I loved our conversation. Uh, you guys, make sure you purchase your tickets for Slugfest and go listen to his presentation over individualizing in the team setting. That's going to be unbelievable. And again, Jared, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. Before you go, I'd love to be able to get in touch with you, and we have several different ways of doing so. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AOTC underscore podcast. You can join the AOTC Coaches Facebook group. And if you want to be a part of the mini clinic emails, both of those links are listed below. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.